everyone. Welcome to another edition of Establishing Shots. I am Ted Barron, the executive director here at the DeBartolo Performing Arts Center. We are here in the beautiful Browning Cinema for another recording session. Uh, I am pleased to be joined, uh, as per usual, by my colleague, Ricky Herbst. Hello, Ricky. Uh, hi, Ted. No qualifier that time. None needed. None needed. And we have a special guest with us today. Michael Kackman is here. Hello, Michael. Hello. <laughs> Michael, do I, do I get a thousand voices? Do I, do I get a qualifier? Uh, well, Ricky usually gets esteemed as his qualifier, oh, but I've, I've worn good. that out. I've, mm-hmm. I've, I've, I've kind of, so I was trying to find a new one. We'll, okay, I guess we'll I wait till esteemed. We'll man. wait for 2019. Well, here's what you are. Upstairs roommate. Michael Kackman. Oh, that's right. <laughs> Wacky <Michael>, neighbor. <laughs> Michael is the associate teaching professor and the director of undergraduate studies in our department of film, television, and theater. He is a uh, he's part of our TV studies team that is rocking it day in and day out. We try to. Um, he also uh, recently uh, co-edited along with our fellow another uh, FTT professor, uh, Mary Celeste Kearney. Uh, the the uh, text, The Craft of Criticism, Critical Media Studies and Practice. Giddy up. Thanks. Yep. There you go. It's in, in, in better bookstores. It is in better bookstores. Okay. Um, or at least the, the best bookstores. <laughs> it's in better world bookstores. <laughs> um, and like our former, uh, our former guest, uh, Chris Becker, also a faculty member in Department of Film, Television, and Theater, Michael has experience in this wild world of podcasting. We are, we are indeed a podcasting team. That's right. With Akamedia. Yeah. Do I say it right? Sure. <laughs> if one wants to go listen to Aka Media, where would one find that, Michael? Uh, I, you could, let's see. Is it like uh, a it zine? Is, is it a zine? What is oh, it? Oh, wow. Is it? <laughs> no, it is essentially the official podcast of the Society for Cinema and Media Studies. Mm-hmm. So we do some stuff that's kind of inside baseball about um, uh, about um, the field, but we also do a lot of profiles of... Um, recent interesting scholarship and that kind of thing. And you can find us at uh, www.aca-media.org. Not That's academia, aca media. Oh, That's... I get it. <laughs> <laughs> Did you need that no, explained to you? No, no, no. I like, it. I like one, the title. I that one good. needs a qualifier, too. Yeah. yeah. Brilliant. There's the qualifier. Okay, well, listen to Aka Media. But for now, you're going to listen to Establishing Shot. We're going to talk about it's November. Um, so we, as we uh, brilliantly sort through our our ideas for um, our top three list, our monthly top three, um, we thought about it's, it being November and November being the month in which people consume a lot of turkey. Um, so we thought about some turkeys that we've consumed over the years. As that, God is my witness, I swear I thought turkeys could fly. <laughs> I have to watch that this year. That's one of my favorite television episodes of all time. WKRP in Cincinnati. Thank you. Um, no comment from Ricky. Um, Not even a qualifier. Not a, no, yeah. that's that K Meg syndicated. I didn't get into it. Sorry. Okay. Um, the uh, so we're gonna do our so in terms of turkeys, we're gonna think of uh, our our biggest uh, kind of film flops, or maybe not the biggest film flops, but the flops that we find most interesting um, that were maybe reviewed by uh, certain surly film critics and called turkeys in their time. Um, so. Let's run through. Let's run through our list. Ricky, what do you have first up in your list of turkeys? Well, my turkeys tended to be box office failures. Some did have critical appraisals that were positive. 
but actually, <laughs> no, most of them didn't. <laughs> Revisit that. Dial that back. <laughs> uh, so my first is uh, from 2013. It's mm-hmm. Only Lovers Left Alive. Uh, coming in with a budget of seven million and mm-hmm. grossing one point seven million. Mm-hmm. That's a turkey, folks. That's a commercial failure. So this is uh, Jim Jarmusch's uh, uh, film, and uh, actually we just had Vim Vendors to campus. And mm-hmm. I, the hair of the two, I often like, I was you, watching you Vim Vendors. I was like, that's some Jarmusch hair. <laughs> um, and I, think I have, Vim did it first. Vim yeah. was there first. He's older. Right, right. Yeah, Jarmusch. Yeah, he came. Well, he is an early white too. I bet. But anywho, uh, this film, as an upside uh, or front-loaded note, uh, hasn't aged that well with me. Um, You watch it a couple of times, and some of the references and allusions are a little too sweet for uh, repeated uh, feastings to stay Mm -hmm. on the Thanksgiving theme. Uh, But the first time I saw it, I really loved this movie, and forever, uh, that memory is what I carry with me. But still... Uh, so Tilda Swinton and Tom Hiddleston play very old souls. How old are they? Well, Real old. They're, they're named Adam and Eve. Ooh. Have you heard of them? <laughs> um, they went and, subtle. And they uh, are vampires who bop around from Tangiers to Detroit. And that's really kind of the run that's of it. That's what I remember most of it being in Detroit. But that's, yeah. Yeah, Starts yeah. in Tangiers and okay. they hang out with... Uh, Christopher Marlowe, you heard of him, mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, played by John Hurt. So the first time I saw this, I didn't get any of those references. I like, didn't hear them. I was thinking about other things. Anyway, um, and Adam uh, is uh, suicidal and depressed, and his partner, uh, Eve, uh, is really over it. So when <laughs> when he threatens uh, that he's going to shoot himself and end everything, she just kind of rolls her eyes. And they have this they have this relationship that's great in that regard. That um, they kind of care <laughs> about the small bumps, but really, in the long trajectory of it, uh, there there isn't much to, uh, much that they need to be consumed by. Um, uh, Neil deGrasse Tyson has this thing about if you take the Earth and shrink it down to the size of the cue ball, mm-hmm. um, it would be the flattest, like, roundest cue ball that had ever been made. So, like, all of the all of the bumps that you see in relationships, when you think about the trajectory and the size of their relationship, mm-hmm. it's been mm-hmm. going on forever. It's just like, eh, yeah. how can one really care? Um, so, anyway. Um, I saw this at a festival screening, I think, when it, when it was first being released, and uh, it was hard to see in that context because... It's so low key, and it's so it's so understated. Which I mean, I guess you can expect with with Jarmusch's work, yeah. right? Um, it's not exactly something surprising when you see a Jarmusch film, but it just in the context of seeing it at a film festival, it just really fell flat for me. I just after couldn't. watching, you know. Eight other films in the right, last exactly, two days exactly, and, right. exactly. Yeah. So um, I had a hard, t- I had, a, I've, I've had a hard time engaging with it, and never went back to it. That's entirely understandable. Um, he actually had action in the film. Mm-hmm. I don't know the degree to which it was like action. go for a walk or something. Yeah. Or? And he's like, ah, I'm going to cut all of that. <laughs> <laughs> really tone it down. And the way I was thinking about it, and the way I kind of framed it, is if you take the movie performance. Mm-hmm. And lower the stakes mm-hmm. and watch it at half speed. You kind of get this. <laughs> Boy, that sounds pretty good. I know. Right? That's how that doesn't that have should the, have been uh, the tagline. But performance has Mick singing in it at least, and it's just. But it, this well, a has lot Tom of people. Tom Hiddleston playing guitar. That's true. A lot, of, but just a lot of like guitars, hanging out with a lot of blankets. And <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> why do vampires need blankets? I thought uh, they're, they're cold blooded, okay. right? <laughs> 
uh, or yak hair. Like all their wigs are made from right. like yaks and things like that. Yeah. But the point when a person really stops to care uh, because like time doesn't matter, but something's still pulling you forward. Like that, I think of like limp, like twelve year olds that are like going to like family. So tired, mm-hmm. yeah. I can't do that. But yeah. something's still pushing them there. And for here, it's the relationship in some ways, or something like art. You know, if it's literature or guitar music, um, and that's nice. Oh, even when nothing really matters, you know, <laughs> something is there to still matter. It's that quote that uh, life is far too short and yet incredibly boring. Mm-hmm. Uh, and if you take away that, well, if life wasn't too short and you could live forever. Just think how boring it could be. Just how boring it could be, yeah. And even nice. the things, uh, this is a bit of a spoiler, but one of the things that Adam really likes in it is his guitar collection, and that is they have to leave it all behind. And it's like a sigh, and you keep moving. You know, hundreds and thousands of years of collection. Like, eh. mm-hmm. uh, and so that's a... Uh, I, I like that message. You can also see why that wouldn't make it baffle at the box office. Mm-hmm. Uh, to have something that is very clearly like American end of empire as well. And there's a reason they're in Detroit. Yeah. Um, but even regardless of the of the uh, commercial, you know, success or lack thereof, um, just even within Jarmusch's work, it's not necessarily a film. I, I don't know. Have people started to go back to it? Do you have a sense that when starting, I was googling for this? Yeah, I think there are some kind of culty? second wave apologists. Well, and it was well reviewed when it came out. Yeah, I just think people didn't care. Yeah, because it doesn't care. That's yeah, yeah exactly. Well, it's, hard to, it's that's kind of where I was with that's that's yeah, kind of where sure. I was with it. So yeah. great, uh, Michael. Do you have a turkey okay, so, to share with us? Okay, so this this is not a critical turkey, but it is a, a commercial turkey. Okay, and this will seem like a, a bit of an unsurpri- uh, a bit of a surprising one, but uh, Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. It was a big failure. It was a failure. Nineteen seventy one. Gene Wilder. I, mm-hmm. I mean, it's it's brilliant, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, it's like it's um, a scathing takedown of childhood in in, in <laughs> glorious ways, and. Um, <laughs> is a really, really great antidote to, to every heartwarming tale about the power of the human spirit. Um, has a, just, like, this, like, incredibly beautiful, magical darkness to it. Um, and it was, yeah, it was largely a flop. Mm-hmm. The studio ended up paramount. Um, and by the late 70s, they decided that there was there was nothing to be um, gained from even re-registering the copyright, so they, were, they let it lapse, and they... Um, Sold it off cheap to Warner Brothers, who then kind of turned it into oh, uh, okay. Because that's I was uh, associated with Warner Brothers. Yeah, and that's when you said, and Paramount. so it's in in um, you know heavy syndication on TV. Right. Um, not long after that, right. um, that's probably when I would see it for yeah. the first time. So not a critical flop, mm-hmm. certainly. I mean, it got you know a fair amount of good critical attention, but a commercial flop. And yeah. of course, this is like right in the middle of um, lots of Disney live action comedies, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, that's when Disney's doing all their. Um, Fred McMurray comedies and Flubber and, you know, all that kind of stuff. Family family fair. Yeah, Bed Knobs and Broomsticks, that kind of stuff. Um, and I think the only one of the bunch that's worth watching is Willy Wonka and the Chocolate Factory. Well, and I just, I associate it with it being in syndication on television. Mm-hmm. Um, usually, like, around holidays. I don't know if it was a particular holiday that they would try to exploit uh, with Willy Wonka. Probably something involving candy, but... Um, 
it was and 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 also not paying attention until they get to the to the factory tour as a, as a kid watching mm. it. like I would the, all the stuff with which now I like the the first half yeah, all the it. old people in the bed yeah, together yeah, yeah. And, mm-hmm. yeah. right right um, but now but what, as a kid I just wanted to get right to the you know the 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 easier part to follow right. which is the tour and then the the gradual the disappearance and, or not the munchkins the, the, the oompa loompas <laughs> right and, right yeah. right yeah so. Um, you want to see those kids getting killed. <laughs> oh, you totally do. It, there's a great pleasure in seeing little... Yeah. Do we have a bleep on this uh, <laughs> system? No, I love spelling bees for a reason. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You punishment. see all the kids lose. It's, except one. Punishment is a... It's, it is underappreciated. Right. Mm-hmm. Very good. What uh, do you got? Um, I have, so I'm going to, I'm going to play it a little safe in terms of, uh, just kind of going back into the depths of film history. Um, although maybe not so safe in the sense that, um, Orson Welles is kind of back on people's, uh, radars, uh, right now, or some people's radar, uh, because of, uh, the finally, uh, released uh, version of The Other Side of the Wind, uh, which as of this recording, I've only made it halfway through. I don't know what so the Which side of the on. wind are you on? I don't know. <laughs> the side, uh, o- Oha, Oya Kodar's backside, apparently, because that's, that's all I remember from the first half of the film. Um, but the, uh, it's, you know, that, that film is, is a film that was long um, uh, gestating in the sense that it had been unfinished and there had been so many efforts to try to, uh, to, to get it finished and get it released over the years. Um, so it made me think back to uh, one of his most celebrated, controversial, uh, certainly, you know, in terms of film history, one of the great stories of film history, uh, which is his uh, film version of The Magnificent Ambersons. Um, uh, I taught a course on RKO films uh, last fall, and we uh, we revisited this uh, in the class. And I think it was actually one of the films that was most well-received by the students, surprisingly. Um, the story behind Magnificent Ambersons, it's an adaptation of a Booth Tarkington novel, uh, follows a family in Indianapolis who— Low-key uh, Hoosier film. That's right. That's right. <laughs> that uh, plays well at the Browning Cinema, actually. We usually get a good good response to that. Sorry, Monrovia, Indiana. <laughs> <laughs> Monrovia, Monrovia did okay. It yeah, did, did okay. okay. It, it commu- cumulatively did okay. Um, but, uh, in terms of the Magnificent Emerson story of this, uh, well-to-do family, um, who get there, well, the son of, uh, the son of the family gets, the story is, is he gets his comeuppance, um, it, you sort of follow, uh, their daily life. Um, but what's the, what's famous about this is that Wells, uh, had shot the film, um, there was a cut that was, I don't know, somewhere around two hours long. Um, it was this big, sprawling epic. Um, he went off to uh, Brazil to shoot another film for RKO. While he was gone, the studio uh, heads took a look at it. They weren't happy with what they saw, so they um, they completely recut it um, and brought in an editor to uh, to recut the film um, so that it was it, it, which removed. Uh, some uh, significant passages which explained a lot of characters' backstories and um, and other pieces of the, the sort of the family history um, and destroyed the footage. And it's seen as one of the great crimes in the history of mm. cinema that this footage was uh, – th- th- that this footage uh, uh, 
it was, you know, that the film was treated as such and that no one has ever been able to uh, reclaim that footage, that it's just, it's just disappeared. Mm-hmm. Um, so what I would say about the film is that in its, in its form that we get to experience, it's very, so- I think it's solid. I think it has um, the right moments. I think it's, I think in some ways it's, it's more compelling than Citizen Kane, which comes out the year before. Um, it doesn't, you know, Citizen Kane has this kind of bravado and bombast of, you know, the 26-year-old wonderkind who's, um, you know, going out to make this this big, bold statement. Um, this film has a boldness to it, but it also, I think it has a kind of warmth and humanity in the way that um, the, the scope of the characters that we do see within the film are, are actually really quite compelling. So um, I'm a fan. It, it plays well. I think it, it comes back mm-hmm. in different forms. They've, they've, there have been efforts to try to reclaim that original script and turn it into, you know, there's, there was like a, a mini series done a few years ago. Uh, that's how I was A TV movie, TV, maybe a TV mm-hmm. movie, but, um, which was supposedly closer to that script. And it just doesn't work. I mean, you need, it's not just the story that's missing. You need to have Wells's vision to really, to make that, to make that piece work. Which is, I think, why even in its truncated form, um, it still works. But yeah, the, and the, Joseph Cotton, I mean, he's incredible. I love yeah. him. Um, but also, just the, in terms of the Turkey side of it, is that the studio was—they um, were so unhappy with it, they kind of rushed it out to theaters, and then quickly it, it flopped uh, and uh, was just seen as you know one of Orson Welles's big failures, and actually led to a real um, loss of uh, autonomy for him within the studio system, and kind of really pushed him outside. So. Poor Orson Welles. It's tough. It's yeah. tough. That's how you end up in wine commercials. <laughs> <That's right. laughs> or Muppet movies. Or Muppet movies. <laughs> or wine commercials in Muppet movies. <laughs> uh, or Transformers, actually. That's kind of that's the, the most bizarre credit of his, is his voiceover work on the Transformers movie in the 80s. He was a very confusing, uh, coming to him first, I think the first Orson Welles performance I ever saw was the Transformers movie. I was, I was Transform- probably Muppet movie. I mean, that's what I think of. And it was very odd finding out that, oh, this guy's really, like, respected. <laughs> like, right. I don't know how this came to be. Yeah, what was his? Well, at least Ted and I grew up with, we will drink, we will sell no wine before it's That's right, the Gallo <laughs> wine. That's, that's, I mean, I knew him from that, and I knew him from the, from the Muppet movie. Yeah. So that's all I got from him. Uh, Ricky, number two on your list. Uh, so I have a, uh, a critical uh, dump. As well as a commercial <laughs> failure. Uh, but not that. I, I, I was going to track that back. I mean, it did okay. But that is from 2008. It's the Wachowskis Speed Racer. Mm-hmm. So Speed Racer had been in production since 1992. Uh, guess what was happening in 1992? Uh, Gen Xers, nostalgia. Guess what's not happened in 2008. <laughs> Gen Xers going to movies kind of speed racer. (laughs) (laughs) So it's something that I think had a lot of energy before, and people were attached to it for a long time, like Gus Van Sant, weirdly. And by the time the Wachowskis got it, my own uh, private speed racer? (laughs) (laughs) I would see that. I'd go, I'd check that out. Uh, Speed Race. I, I also right. watch a cartoon version or of my own private drug, Idaho. Yeah, <laughs> I would too. Or, a, or as a, a sequel to Drugstore Cowboy, yeah. Speed Racer. I mean, it's like the it's Get like the hat off the bed. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. It's speed. Yeah, it, it could be. It could, they could move to the Midwest. It could be like right. a meth narrative instead of prescription pills <laughs> in the mm-hmm. Northwest. It's got like, come on, that's got. Well, drug size. I think part of why I've never taken LSD, but like. 
reading Tom Wolf, like, I think this movie is, like, what LSD's like. Mm-hmm. Uh, note real quick, Only Lovers Left, Left Alive has the best, uh, like, drug-taking scenes I've ever seen. When they drink the blood, mm-hmm. I think it's so cool. Okay. But back to Speed Racer, where they don't drink that much blood. Um <laughs> I, I didn't have any baggage with it because I didn't mm-hmm. really care about the original cartoon. I also hadn't seen very many cartoon adaptations, so I wasn't disappointed by Inspector Gadget or um, Super Mario Brothers or whatever <laughs> video game. Okay, so Casper, uh, Christina Ricci, mm-hmm. uh, like none of those. So I didn't, I didn't come with that much expectations in terms of you were because you always saw those as you never cared about those. I never cared, or yeah. I just like it didn't happen. Yeah, you know. Uh, but I saw the trailer for this, and I thought, okay, going back to Orson Welles, I was like, this will be the new deep focus. Yeah, yeah. They've changed the landscape. It's flat. Um, it's like a Rothko. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I, was, I, was, I was proselytizing a lot to my friends, being like, this is going to be really important. Uh, and it still could be. I don't know. Maybe people will come back to it. Uh, but I love the cartoonishness of the visuals. I love the cartoonishness of the narrative that matches it. It doesn't care. Jokes come at weird points. The whole, the, the green screen, the fact everything was green screened, I think fits like how they came about the script because the script needs to fit that world. And um, it does, even if it's clumsy and clunky, <laughs> like many green screen things are. Um, but, uh, but another thing that makes it clunky is the cast is really off. Like Susan Sarandon and John Goodman as cartoon mm. parents. Mm-hmm. Right. Doesn't seem quite right. But they kind but they do look like the cartoon characters. Kind of. Or they make them look like Yeah. Them, I guess, but. but they're kind of dead eyed in this yeah. in the way they're normally not. Yeah. Maybe because of the, the, the flatness. Yeah. And Emil Hirsch is a real... Yeah, he's kind of a, an empty... Brooding, yeah. brooding, <laughs> empty, weird choice there. And Christina Ricci right. is always a weird addition yeah. to a movie. They tried hard to push us on Emil Hirsch 10 years ago, right? That was like, there was like a real effort to make him kind of... He's good. Our, Back our, to Gus Van Sant, he's good in Milk, right? I barely remember him from it. Yeah. He? Yeah, that's good. But anyway. Yeah, he was. He was all right in that. Yeah. yeah. It's not a big role either. No. <laughs> Fine job. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, yeah, they did try hard, mm-hmm. and it didn't quite land. He apparently Mr. Baseballed it and watched all of Speed Racer uh, to get ready for it. It's like, I don't think that really came through. Yeah. Uh, but going back to it, I think it is a lot of fun. I think it, we should probably show it in the Browning where you have a big screen to be enveloped by it. Um, and I think it's worth revisiting, even though not that many people visited the first time or decided to go back to it since. You should uh, pitch it to Professor Finkelfunder for uh, the, the family fun. It would, that would be good. <laughs> you know, I would, might be I would go if you would show um, an episode or two of the of the animated series, the original, maybe maybe a little flipper. Um, and there maybe was a an episode movie. of Shazam would be good <laughs> to put in there alongside it, right? Because um, oh, Shazam! Shazam was always the, a marker of that. You know, the day is not going well because it's already in the, the middle of the afternoon on a Saturday, and I'm yeah, still and watching. You're still television. in front of the TV. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. But yeah, Speed Racer. Well, Speed Racer was fairly cherished as a you know. Yeah, I was never that, an after school show. I was never that into it. Um, I, I, I love actually the three dimensionality to it. Just like the, the I just missed the boat on it. Um, I um, I probably would have like I, I don't I don't know what how I missed it, but but I but when you talk about you know audience for it, I remember trying to introduce my son to the show, who was probably about four at the time, 
And he just he just didn't buy it. He just wasn't into it. So I think there was, you know, not only is it, you know, this question of, you know, ad- adapting something that's beloved by a certain, you know, by the right audience. But I think the audience, the intended audience for that was kids. And if the kids didn't know it or didn't, you know, kind of get, um, you know, what the cartoons were, then, of course, it was going to fail. It also is a little scary. Um, mm-hmm. It wasn't intended to be a family film. And you can't unwash that out, right? Yeah. After that many years of development, it could have been like a. It could have been good as like a Werner Herzog uh, (laughs) picture, right? Yeah. (laughs) Maybe the The race will never end. The race will never end. (laughs) You must never look at the race. (laughs) I would. I would. I think he would actually. He could recut this into something pretty neat too. Okay, that's Mm -hmm. good. That's good. Yeah. I think he could work with this and turn it into something. Give him some narration over top. Yeah. I, oh, yeah. cut the narr- cut the race announcers. Exactly. <laughs> Make him the race exactly. announcer. Oh, perfect. That would be. <laughs> there you have it. There's some good stuff. Right after he did Julian Donkey Boy, he could do this. <laughs> it's, it's just a perfect double feature. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Um, Michael, second on your list is. Oh, okay. This is maybe an obvious choice, <laughs> um, but somebody had to put it on their list. Yeah. And it has to be uh, Showgirls. Oof. <laughs> Come on, Paul Verhoeven, 1995, mm-hmm. about the uh, uh, the stripper who makes it big as a showgirl, mm-hmm. um, and it's um, you know it's 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 like epically bad, right? Yeah. And the um, it's got a script by Joe Esterhaus, who's who's a um, a keen observer of women's culture. That's pretty generous. Um, <laughs> And so, like, just, like, howlingly awful dialogue between yeah. Elizabeth Berkeley, the star right. who is, of course, you know— um, We were waiting uh, for that big off transition. Saved by the Bell. I was going to say— was her big transition. Yeah, I was going to say, yeah. once, you know, once she made it big with Saved by the Bell, we were just waiting for that big screen was, debut, and, and that's um, what we got. And, it, of course, it's super porny and, <laughs> and um, NC-17. And um, I guess the thing that I, I loved—and, you know, it, it was not a success. Mm-hmm. It was—it's been critically panned and— um, you know, not a box office success or anything. Yeah. Um, but the thing that's kind of great about it, I'm, I'm not actually interested in like reclaiming it as, as, um, camp or something. Well, it's camp. I mean, not, not trying to reclaim it as like, oh, tourist camp, like <laughs> as this, this brilliant oh, meditation. Like on, yeah. Right? right. Um, not, not so much that, but just like, um, I just love the kind of fall apart absurdity of the whole thing. <laughs> and um, I mean, I've only seen it once, but, mm-hmm. you know. Um, but this, this is one where the circumstances of viewing were absolutely crucial to my reaction. And, right. and um, as this story will bear out, um, absolutely crucial to the reactions of other people. Yeah. Um, so I was in grad school and it was showing at, you know, like one theater in town at midnight or something. Because it's NC-17, right? Mm-hmm. And theater's most... Uh, commercial theaters didn't even really want to show it. Mm-hmm. And um, so one night after colloquium and probably um, dozens of beers, um, a, a bunch of us went and um, a bunch of my grad school friends and I went and we plunked ourselves down because we were going you know, to watch this this brilliant film. And um, as the lights were coming down, this like pack of frat guys, oh, um, this is a University of Wisconsin, <laughs> oh, they God. came slinking in mm-hmm. and they were, they were like there to like uh, have 
have some kind of you know quiet uh, magic sexy fun time oh, they were like awesome. this they were this was like the closest they could get to going to see porn yeah they yeah. all sat in yeah. different rows <laughs> well they sat in clusters so maybe uh-huh. they were looking for magic sexy fun time maybe um, and a, that tracks with its showgirls it, it does it totally audience. does and um, there were like five of them immediately mm-hmm. in front of us and they were you could tell you know, like they kind of came in and they hunched down and like you know put their trench coats up over (laughs) their heads yeah Yeah. um and of course you know my friends and i we were we just started snickering from the very beginning and pretty soon we were howling and the the palpable discomfort between um you know our comic reaction and these guys who were there for um boobies um (laughs) it was so beautiful and and they were so uncomfortable and it made them so kind of sad like it broke the film for them so that was wow which that makes the fun. film for you. Oh, totally. Right, right. If you can Absolutely. break the film for somebody. Yeah. <laughs> I had more of a seedy experience because I saw it in a, at a dollar theater, you know. When it was, you know yeah, exactly. Classy. So it was already, and there were like five people there. So it All was sitting it was, in different corners. Exactly, exactly. So oh. it was no raincoats, thank goodness. But um, it was just, it was. Or you need a raincoat. Yeah, I know. <laughs> but it was, you know, it was, it just was dead. So it wasn't like, you know, you at least were there with friends. And yeah. um, I went, yeah, because I went by myself. My wife didn't want to give. She was like, "You can go see that. I'm not going. To, I'm not going to watch that with you." Um, so you were willing to go by yourself? Sure. I used to, that was wow. like that was when I started to get into like going to movies alone. Yeah, you should but have swung a by a frat house and picked I up was, a few guys. Was, to yeah, go I know, I know, I know. But it was. That's yeah. when you buy two tickets and be like, oh, someone's going to meet me in the room. <laughs> it's only a dollar. I mean, why not? This one's for my girlfriend. So, yeah. But I've, I've, you know, I've tried, I've, I've like read, you know, criticism of it that's tried to reclaim it in different ways. And I've never really bought into it. Um, I think it's kind of hilarious. I mean, I think there's a, there's this weird aggressiveness to it. Like oh, when she totally. dances and she's dancing. She's like she, but oh, yeah, I can't yeah, say that. Dancing. Can I? <laughs> <laughs> but I mean, it, yeah, the way she's like just sort of furiously dancing on yeah. stage. Yeah. Doing other things furiously. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> it's yeah. There's a the, Berkeley's performance. Is, uh, yeah, my friends and I, whole, like Catherine Hepburn. You know, she she <laughs> has the right. uh, range of expression from <laughs> A to B. Well, my friends and I always would talk about it because we saw it and like it's '95. We're like, oh, this is some '80s stuff that did not stay contained to the decade. Like the mm. the energy behind mm. it, the, the real well. <sighs> I was going to say, like, Trumpish. Yeah. (laughs) Well, it's right after Basic Instinct, too. Mm -hmm. So it's kind of, you know, it's picking up, like, and Basic Instinct has that, like, angry thing, to you know, angry sex thing to Mm -hmm. it that, you know, kind of somehow works better in that context. Although you go back to that, and I think that film looks pretty ridiculous. Oh, yeah. yeah. (laughs) Not that, you know, it was, you know, there there was a lot of criticism. Esther House. Yeah, exactly. Well, Esther House and Verhoeven. Yeah. Um, Well, and it's Esther House with, all the more money and whatever he was fueled on too. Right. Like no, it's the opposite of Wells. Like yeah. no constraints is the last thing he needed. But also like use, I mean, in that case, using Sharon Stone, who is limited, but actually works really well in that kind of character versus Elizabeth Berkeley, who right. should have stuck At least with Sharon Stone, like Saturday syndicated. Knows what a femme fatale is. <laughs> right, exactly. Exactly. I think you're selling a short. Berkeley? Just putting it out there. Yep. Okay. We'll you, see you can, someday. Yeah, we'll find. She's gonna have to come up again <laughs> in the podcast. All right. Um, well, let's let's forget about the sad history of showgirls um, and move on to an actual '80s movie, an early '80s movie uh, from the summer of 1981. John Travolta riding high after the success of uh, his late '70s 
kind of uh, triumphs of Saturday Night Fever and uh, Grease and then uh, Urban Cowboy, all of these, uh, some of which were more commercially successful than critically successful. Um, But there were really high expectations for him in the summer of 81 when uh, he teamed up with Brian De Palma uh, to uh, make the film Blowout, which Michael is already, he's sharpening his teeth to just take a chomp out of this one. But um, this like is Elizabeth Berkeley. <laughs> that's right, that's right. <laughs> yeah, he's got that Berkeley. He's got those Berkeley nails out. Um, so, uh, story of blowout is he's. Uh, it's it's a film that has uh, is seen as a kind of remake or a, a kind of reimagining of it's two earlier films. A, a total, you call it a remake. I don't think it's but keep going. I'm sorry. All right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. No, no. You can you can editorialize. Um, so of the of Antonioni's Blow Up and uh, Francis Ford Coppola's The Conversation. Blow Up focuses on photography. Um, the Conversation focuses on audio recording. Uh, Blow Out tries to merge the two and make it all about filmmaking. Travolta is a sound recordist who's out recording sound one night when he uh, witnesses uh, a car veer off the road and hears, uh, and hears a gunshot, um, and that becomes uh, a lead into a whole conspiracy theory and um, what I think is a, a very wonderful um, and, and probably the peak of Brian De Palma's work, which I'm not saying in a way that suggests that I'm a big fan of Brian De Palma because I'm not. I'm actually quite critical of his work. I think this is the one time he got it right where he kind of works through all of his passions and obsessions about film history, but also makes a film that very much speaks to the moment of kind of post-Watergate cynicism, um, kind of distrust of of the world at large. And I think it's actually a very wonderful, beautiful experience. The film itself failed miserably at the box office. It was a, it was a great flop and actually was the beginning of a big downtrend in Travolta's uh, career. Um, I think Travolta as a performer, I've, you know, it's funny growing up watching him, I never really took him seriously. And then as probably a young adult, I went back to this in part because of uh, Quentin Tarantino citing it as one of his favorite films of all time, um, went back to it and have uh, and see it as Travolta at his very best. And I don't think he's ever done anything uh, quite as good, I think, in terms of as a leading man and as, a, as an actor. What about Battleship Earth? Uh, that does that could have been on our list. That could have been, uh, but I, I, don't th- I almost put it on there just for you. But I didn't want to. <laughs> so uh, that is the that is the pro for blowout, uh, Professor Kackman. No, no, may no. we I have the con? I, I, just, I just have I just have such a hard time with Brian De Palma. Yeah, um, I do too. And it's like karaoke filmmaking or something. Mm-hmm. I just like everything is a citation and mm-hmm. and somebody else's idea, and just, I just have a really hard time. What I think this for and me, I think this is the one time it so works. Good. Blow up is so. I mean, it's it's slow and weird, and yeah. Antonioni's a little tough, and yeah. But I think that I love that, and to me, this for me, what I really like about, it, especially kind of looking at it in the context of film history, is that it kind of uh, it takes the air, it takes the wind out of the sails of the new American cinema group, you know, all of the mm-hmm. all of the directors coming up in the 70s who are, you know, people tend to, I think, overvalue mm-hmm. uh, in terms of their work. And this is a film that I think is very accomplished as a film in itself, but also uh, looks at that whole success, uh, that period of success uh, with a much more jaded eye. It's, I mean, it's, I, I, I always say it's more of a 70s film than uh, an 80s film, because even though it comes out in 81, it, it maybe would have worked better had yeah. it come out oh, in absolutely. 78. Yeah. So, yeah. 
Anyway, no strong feelings? No? No. I'm pretty apathetic, actually. I I also am not a De Palma fan. Yeah. And so, but it's one of those I don't hold against, like, I think it's fine if you want to do karaoke filmmaking. That's its own. I mean, pastiche is fun. Yeah. No wonder Tarantino likes it. I got got no problem with that. Um, But I do have a problem with, like, how De Palma does it and Tarantino does it, Mm -hmm. potentially. Um, But no, I think it's... Yeah. yeah. I mean, Dress to Kill comes out a year before, and I think that's a a terrible, ugly film, um, which was very successful. Um, but I just feel like he gets it right here in some way. Mm-hmm. And part of it, I think, is I, 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 you know, you guys will make fun of me for this, but I believe in the sentiment of the relationship between Travolta and Nancy Allen. I think Nancy Allen's wonderful in this. I think I do her, like Nancy Allen. In, in her not, play, and, 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 and actually, I like when her. I show this in students watch it, they don't get her because, like, why does she talk like that? She's she's really annoying. And then, mm-hmm. you know, when the turn happens for her in the film, um, it's incredibly moving because I, th- I think she's she's really built sympathies. And again, Travolta. He's just great in it, um, and I don't think he's ever done anything as good. So I like uh, Greece. I think is I, his performance in Greece is great. He is. I, I'd say. I think, yeah, I would say so too. Yeah, I'd say Blowout Greece. Actually, Saturday Night Fever. I put above Greece okay. in terms of performance, Fair. and then Greece. So and then it then it all sucks. Also, I think it is a. Uh, like a lot of the new Hollywood people, your first film is the one that you maybe excuse, and then you get tired if they don't really rework things. And I saw Dress to Kill before I saw mm-hmm. this, and so I was like, "Oh, okay, this is this is like that first set of this is fun, mm-hmm. and that doesn't age well." And then the other thing is like, "Well, well, I'm over it." Mm-hmm. But we do love Carrie. We oh, sorry, we, sorry. We do love Carrie. I don't. I never. It, no, it, that is yes. I love Carrie. I never think of it as a De Palma film. Yeah. I think of it. It's I'm totally just like, Palmer. I know. I it, no. It's chapter verse, but it just doesn't because I like it. Maybe. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> you know. I, yeah. I'm kind of with you on that. <laughs> I mean, I don't love Carrie, but I respect it, and it's you know, and yeah. So that kind of makes it categorically not something I would think of as a De Palma film. Yeah. <laughs> okay. Number okay. three for Ricky. So I'm going to close out um, with a with a oh sorry you know, a, a film from uh, similar similar era, a real '70s movie. Uh, and that is Roar. Uh, Roar was made for $17 million. It grossed $2 million. Um, it wasn't released in America, I think. Uh, I don't think they bothered. <laughs> um, and it is critically panned, and I would probably pan it too, but it's quite an experience. Uh, I like it. I, I'm going to give two taglines and then a quote about the film because they're amazing. Uh, first tagline, uh, no animals were harmed in the making of this film. 70 cast and crew members were. <laughs> That's pretty good. Second tagline, uh, there's never been a film like Roar, and there never will be again. That's true. <laughs> I think laws were put in place that I couldn't. <laughs> and then lastly, I like this quote about it. Uh, it's debacles make apocalypse now, and Fitzcarraldo look like children's birthday parties. <laughs> That's good, too. I know. Man, those are up. The writing around, this is the problem with it, and why I don't want to hype it too much, but I want yeah. people to see it is that the writing around it and the facts that it generates are more interesting than the movie itself. Yeah, I mean, uh, I just know, like, just when you see stills from it, it that was, I was more interested than, anyway, right. than it's, the film. It's a, it's a bit of a slog to get through. But anywho, so Noah Marshall and Tippi Hedren wanted to make a movie that was environmentalist and mm-hmm. that would bring attention to the plight of big cats in Africa. Um... You know, great intentions. <laughs> uh, that's the that's the pathway to hell. Uh, that's where they ended up. Uh, so they ended up 
Captain Ahabing an 11 year shoot. Uh, and it was filmed in Africa. And among other among the things that happened, uh, they built this large set, uh, and a flood came and got rid of it. Very biblical. <laughs> Take that as a sign. Uh, Jan DeBont, uh, who makes Speed, mm-hmm. uh, is the cinematographer. At one point, he is scalped and requires 120 stitches. Uh, they weren't kidding when they were saying 70 <laughs> humans were. Uh, broken bones, puncture wounds. Yeah. Melanie Griffith uh, has like her arm broken. But uh, the film is very much art imitating life, life imitating art. So the plot is that Noel Marshall is a scientist who brings this, who studies big cats, and there are like 30 on the screen around him at any given point. He brings his family in to live with him, but he's gone when that happens. Mm-hmm. And his family is his family. It's Tippi Hedren. Melanie Griffith said, I don't want to do it. And then she's like, actually, I'll do it. And so she comes in. They had to reshoot some stuff. And then Noel Marshall's biological children. So the whole family yeah. is there for it. Um, the scenes are mainly Noel Marshall that come in two sets. It's Noel Marshall hanging out with lions anthropomorphizing them and ad-libbing. Uh, in fact, they give a writing credit to the animals. Nice. <laughs> That's kind of grizzly manish. It's very grizzly. Thinking of, yeah. of, yeah. of, of Werner Herzog. Yep. Yes, yep. very much. Yes, very close there. Um, but they, uh, but the fact that they give a writing credit to the, to the lions is like, well, maybe that wasn't a good idea. Um, and so it's him, it's like ad-libbing with animals. He's not good at it. And he'll just be like, hey, you, uh, what are you doing there? No, stop that. For just like minutes at a time, just hanging out with them, wrestling. And then they cut away. So the B footage is oftentimes lions fighting. And then the A footage is like lions kind of playfully attacking humans, (laughs) all of which just You could reverse the A and B there probably. Right. But it's stressful the entire time. Wow. Because you know people are getting hurt. There are scenes where where the blood is actually still in there. Right. And it's so tense, which makes the second part, which is he leaves and the family comes to the house and then the lions bring in a zebra or something, but they get blood hungry, right? And it turns into, in many ways, a slasher film where the lions are around the house and all of the family need to get in containers and hide. And it's like 15 minutes of just them trying to get in shelves and lions coming and slowly knocking it over and then they have to go out and get in another, like, drawer. <laughs> it's, uh, but yeah. it has, but in, like, uh, so I saw it after, like, active shooter training. Mm-hmm. So it has that kind of, because it's a real slow burn. Not that an active shooter would be, but it's just. But just that kind there's of. There's so that much sort time of, yeah. to think about threat. what this is. Yeah, 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 yeah. Because not that much happens. So you're like, oh, right. this is like a slasher in this way and that way. So it allows you to map on a lot of other real life or like uh, genre whore tropes uh, during the time. <laughs> like I said, not that much happens, and it uh, gives you a pretty good, uh, pretty good meditation on like folly, 
like mistakes that keep going. And uh, yeah. you showed it to a group into. of students. You didn't you show it to a group of students recently? I did. Yeah. And how did they? How did it go over? Um, <laughs> it went over by them saying, "Oh, we weren't surprised that you picked this." Because <laughs> <laughs> these are these are the they've seen they they saw your selections last semester, right? For that film series, so, right? Yeah. So they weren't surprised. Okay. But no, I was. I mean, it's it's not. It's not a lot of fun to watch, but yeah. a person should watch the first 30 minutes. Yeah. That's about how much I've gotten into. I, I've, I don't think I've ever watched it all the way through. I, I, you know, and only recently because I only – I never knew about it. Yeah. I mean, it was it – was, it came up in media, some some review of it recently. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I think it was just reissued. Too, mm-hmm. so. Good stuff. Scary yeah. Lions. Um, what are you ending for – what do you have to take us out, Michael? Well, I was – I've, I have struggled with this honestly because I have I have some things that were that were on my list as kind of possibilities mm-hmm. that were um, that are like really awful yeah. films. What but, are some of those? But, well, I I really was thinking about The Arrival, uh, mm-hmm. which is a mid '90s like right wing fever dream. Uh, it, science fiction invasion film. Okay. Yeah. Where, that poster is like burned in my mind. Oh, it's yeah, I mean it's just so heinously bad. Mm-hmm. And um, you know, essentially uh climate change is being caused by aliens that masquerade as um Mexican immigrants and, <laughs> no, and like God, no. and sprout like <laughs> kind of weird uh backwards legs and start running across the desert. Um it's like it's unbelievably wow. racist and weird. And it's like a, the it's immigration like, issue and climate change exactly, all in one? Yeah. Exactly. <laughs> it's like um, Dinesh D'Souza, D'Souza yeah, exactly. totally has to have a credit somewhere in there. Yeah. So I was thinking about that, and I was also thinking about this like um, um, early 70s kind of um, weird live-action comedies um, mm-hmm. in you know Disney in particular, but other places. And, and then I was thinking about Homps. Mm-hmm. That's H-A-W-M-P-S exclamation point. point. <laughs> um, and it's, uh, it was, it's, a, it's a Western about, um, about um, an incident when the cavalry, the U.S. cavalry, uh, decides to start using camels. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, and it was created by Joe Camp, who, um, who uh, developed the whole Benji uh, right, film series right. okay. as an alternative, you yeah. know, the competitor to Disney stuff. Sure. Um, and it's pretty great and awful and dumb and, and, and weird. But the thing is, you know, I, as you said, I'm, the, I'm, I'm here as, as the TV person. And yes. So I have to make the case for Cop Rock. <laughs> oh, Ricky throws in some TVs from time okay. to time. So I it's think fine. I think we're good. We're it's good fine. with TV movies and TV. But you're going Just, for the whole, especially Cop Rock. Cop Rock, Cop Rock is is, is is brilliant. So Stephen Bochco, coming off Hill Street Blues, mm-hmm. has a promise and uh, from ABC, an open-ended contract, that he can make any show he wants to make, uh-huh. and so he decides to make a cop musical, and it's it's. Tons of A-list talent. You know, you look at the um, the whole ensemble is full of people you'd recognize from 80s, 90s, 2000s mm-hmm. TV. Um, lots of um, people who, you know, went on to, um, you know, ER and, um, you know, all kinds of um, quality uh, network drama. Um, and it's, the music is done by Randy Newman and a whole team of other composers but he's kind mm-hmm. of the, the the lead uh composer on it it's really high profile big budget um but it's a cop musical yep <laughs> and it is so brilliant <laughs> and so weird and and this i think it, of all the things on my list this is yeah. the one that really qualifies as a turkey 
It was a commercial failure. It was a critical failure. Um, MTV Cops, right? That's what they called it? Kind of, yeah. That was one of the things they called it. And the thing is, every episode, it's a, it is, if you look, like all the genre codes are straight up Bochco mm-hmm. cop drama. Yeah. Um, you know, handheld camera and, and like, uh, chiaroscuro lighting and, um. And it's right before NYPD Blue. Yeah. Right? Yep. So. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, so, so it is unmistakable, mm-hmm. um, as a, as a, um, as a cop drama. Um, you know, an ensemble show with layers of political intrigue and corruption and, you know, all that stuff. Um, and it's pretty spot on in building that world, but also every episode has four, five, six, um, songs. And sometimes they are cops singing alone and Mm -hmm. sometimes they're big (laughs) production numbers. Sometimes they're fantasy sequences. Yeah. Sometimes they are um, animating uh, domestic violence scenes. Oof. Um, is it, is it, I mean, I never, I've never seen an episode, I have to confess. I've, I've seen, uh, I've seen like clips of it and I've seen it referenced in, you know, I love the eighties or whatever. Um, but it's, uh, is the, is the music, it's all original music, It is all original music, every single episode. And it's all sung by the, by the actors, Mm -hmm. which is, I mean, it's, it's hard. They do a nice job. They do. I mean, some of it feels super eighties in terms Mm -hmm. of production values and stuff, really, you know, synthy blues numbers and stuff. Mm -hmm. Um, but honestly, some of it is fantastic. But the thing that is really, really amazing about it is that, um, you know, in musicals, the song is like this. They're, they're often, you know, they're like a soliloquy or something, right? You know, there's mm-hmm. this moment where the action suspends. I mean, they're, sometimes a song is a, is a focus of action. But often a song is a, is a place where action suspends and we get to stop and see the character's you know, have this kind of moment of inner reflection and um, mm-hmm. emote. Um, and that those are the things, those are the moments that are so fantastic in this because we're not used to seeing cops emote. The way mm-hmm. that cops emote is to, like, hit somebody, right? I mean, they're, mm-hmm. you know, violence. Um, and, of course, you know, uh, an action scene is really, really close to a dance number anyway. I mean, they're, mm-hmm. they are essentially performing the same kinds of narrative functions. Um, but... These, these moments when cops just sort of drop the pretense and share, you know, kind of bare their souls are so great. And yeah. it's hysterical. And, yeah, it doesn't it, – it feels really cumbersome and it doesn't work very well. Yeah. But it's actually doing something with long-form serial drama that becomes increasingly common. Mm-hmm. Um, and even now, like if it was today, if we saw like a musical adaptation of, I don't know, The Wire or something – that would probably work for us because we're now better equipped to sort of read, um, read these characters as, as having complex internal lives and and um, emotional interactions and stuff. And you know, in 1991, when this show comes out, that's almost unimaginable mm-hmm. uh, within kind of mm-hmm. conventional TV. But it's it's beautiful and weird and nuts. It was only one season. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Right. Yeah, they couldn't get it off like, the air. Did they even get a full did they, like they even do a full season? Or? Well, they uh it Six. was a full short season. So I think there were eleven or twelve episodes, which is really short for that period. Yeah, but, yeah, yeah. Um but they produced all of them. They did not actually I think they might have produced 11 and aired 9. Okay. Okay. Um, I thought but it was they like paid Botchko. They paid Botchko for the for the full run. I mean and yeah. and and it was because of his clout that, that yeah. it even went that far. Uh, so uh, Professor Chris Becker showed a clip of this and, uh, when I was her student. 
uh, I was like, I need my hands on that. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I was like, okay, I, so I haven't, I didn't remember Cop Rock uh, from when I was a kid. I was like, okay, so I'm going to need all of this. And uh, I remember writing a paper. Not mm-hmm. talking about, I wrote this in college, but I was like, oh, this is a good idea. Because, like, it worked for the singing detective. Exactly, which is. like, And why not an, for American? Yeah. American TV, I always thought, like, oh, I think the problem is commercials. Like, if you can stay in the world as long as possible, Mm -hmm. the more you're taken out of it, Mm -hmm. like, that breaks the—you can't have breaks to something that's already breaking the form, right? Mm -hmm. Then you get—you just—you have a chance to, like, take yourself—to, like, open the curtains and be like, oh, okay, actually, this is stupid what I'm doing. Uh, which is why when Glee hits, right, as DVR is fully saturating, I was like, I think this proved my point. It works. Yeah. because yeah. yeah. And of you course, don't have those to... are characters that we're used to seeing emote. But um, but I think you're right. Like, those yeah. disruptions are, are much more easily managed, right? Yeah. 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 But Glee also works because it's, I mean, and partly because it's, you know, it's jukebox. So, I mean, they're, you know, they're doing, I mean, it, Glee was built off of, I can remember watching the first episode. It was like aired right after American Idol. Right, so yeah. it was American Idol peak popularity. People are already kind of in a karaoke mode. Yeah. And um, it is a jukebox musical. Yeah, essentially. Yeah. Where, you know, so that, that that's because I wonder, I mean, if he had just, you know, used popular songs, which probably yeah. would have. Boosted the but although ha- they were already paying him a fortune, I guess. Yeah. So. When you have a, a TV show that is built around like, well, dad will love it for the cops and mom yeah. will love it for the music, yeah. to then yeah. have commercials that are going to readdress you yeah. and like yeah. be like, oh, you should buy a pickup truck guy or you should <laughs> yeah. like that's going to really take you out of the of the the world that they're trying to to get you into. You know, you're I I think you're on something there that's it's really great because I have. I have the full run on VHS mm-hmm. um, with commercials, and um, only some of them are are from the original broadcast. Like some of, some of them are like um, from the Trio Network. Oh right, uh, right, yeah, which is a really great shows. Yeah, yeah, really. Yeah, thank you. Um, but I have I have a few episodes that are off air recordings of the first run, and so they have completely period commercials, mm-hmm. and that's that is fantastic to watch because of exactly these kind of disruptions and then um, the way that they kind of, you know, are coming back from commercials and stuff and it, it makes the experience um, richly immersive. Mm-hmm. Although now the entire show has been re-released uh, just last year or so on DVD so you can watch it without those disruptions. They should stream it somewhere. I mean, that's, that seems like a super binge, you know, opportunity. Yeah. But um, great. Uh, we'll we'll have to find it. Um, we'll check our check uh, various sources to find those DVDs. Um, the last film I'm going to mention is kind of an obvious choice when we t- when we think about uh, big box office flops or, or uh, film flops. Uh, title of the film synonymous <laughs> with these kind of failures, uh, and that would be the film Ishtar from 1987. <laughs> Da-da. Yes, yes. Uh, one of my, uh, so uh, Elaine May directing uh, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty together on screen. What could go wrong? Well, a lot, but uh, <laughs> at least in terms of the production process. Um, May was known for at that point. I mean, obviously known for her work with Mike Nichols, but as a as a film director, uh, working in kind of more improvisational mode, she's probably you know had more success within the film industry uh, as a writer, as a script doctor. She's often you know she's she's worked on scripts and been uncredited. The script for Tootsie, you know, the the sort of sharpness of that script is often credited to her uh, rewrite. 
Um, but this is a film where she uh, she served as writer and director, um, given kind of a, a level of resources that the amount of resources she'd never had before. I think in making a feature film, uh, working with two very mercurial uh, actors uh, who with whom she had. Uh, difficult relationships, but also very intense and uh, and close relationships. Um, As the film is being produced, um, the studio is getting very frustrated with her and starts to leak a lot of bad press about the film. So in many ways, it's one of these things that was kind of set up for failure, uh, kind of kind of like Waterworld because of its, you know, right. Waterworld was another film because of the, the, the box, the uh, budget at the time was seen as so astronomical. The Glass Clifter too. What do you mean by that? They uh, they were giving her something that oh you can have this thing that we think will fail yeah we'll put that's a woman true. at the charge of it and well then, and then that yeah. was the, so that's that her was last directing game right? she's never directed a, a film since so um, which is a tragedy because I think she's one of the great uh, comic directors of of certainly that era um, and I think the film uh, certainly the first half of the film is is one of the funniest films of the 1980s um, because it follows uh, Dustin Hoffman and Warren Beatty who play these kind of hapless uh, songwriter performers as they uh, uh, go around. I think they're in New York. They travel around playing in different nightclubs. They're not very good, but they keep trying. Uh, and then they finally get an opportunity from their agent – uh, who's played by, oh gosh, Jack Weston, uh, mm-hmm. wonderfully. I mean, it's a wonderful ensemble in this film. Uh, Jack Weston uh, tells them to go off to, I think, Marrakesh, uh, where they can, uh, they can you know, sort of have some new opportunities. In many ways, it's, it's supposed to be a kind of throwback to uh, uh, Bob Hope, Bing Crosby road movies, um, and that, that was kind of the conceit of it. With a little um, bit of, like, the producers mixed in. Yeah, but also like like weird, you know, Cassavetti style improvisation thrown in because it's Elaine May, right. and that's kind of what uh, we know what she was involved, uh, what she was known for. Um, so they go off to uh, they go off to Marrakesh. Um, and then get caught up in um, international events, <laughs> and there's a uh, there's a, a blind camel among other things, uh, which humps. was seen as kind of it wasn't humps, but another you know camels are probably not the key to box office success. Um, I think it's I think it holds up really well. It's very funny. Um, the the second half of the film often gets criticized as really going off the rails, but there's something kind of admirable about it, the way it does that i think in, in that section of the film um uh that's and that's I've really never watched more than a clip from yeah it, so. um no it's it's great and highlight for me uh within the film the greatest comic actor of perhaps all time uh featured in a supporting role that would be charles groden uh playing a C, oh. uh, a cia operative yeah. uh giving a very charles grodeny performance uh <laughs> Which is which is wonderful. He is really hard not to like. I love Charles Grodin. Yeah. I just I just adore him. So um, I actually, I screened this for a class recently. The students kind of dug it. They kind of you know they said, oh what well, you know why didn't this work? Um, so um, you know it was we were and we were talking about it in, in the face of kind of thinking of uh, you know the films from that period that were seen as you know in a period of you know sort of when the blockbuster really emerges in the 1980s you know what were some counter narratives to that and this this is a good example of that but it's very funny um, uh, I think Hoffman and Beatty are great uh, Beatty in particular just really great performance so I remember watching it as a kid, and we didn't get all the way through it, but we watched it because we were we wanted to, uh, people were like, "Oh, this is 
uh, it was being framed as the worst movie ever made. Because That's right. It was such That's a right. bomb. Yeah. And we started mm-hmm. watching it. It was like, this isn't that bad. Yeah. There are a lot of bad movies. <laughs> right. Most movies are bad. Yeah, but we right. were there to watch like something horrible. I was like, oh, this is that, disappointing <clears throat> me because it's not so bad. Right. You wanted something like you could make fun of. I wanted roar. And that know? was and that was part of like, you know, the fact that there was this campaign kind of against the film by the studio or people within the studio was what worked against it because mm-hmm. you know it never it, it was never really taken seriously and it just was assumed to be terrible. And it's not. It's actually, in my opinion, really great. Mm-hmm. So. And it unfortunately has a, a non-generic name, like Ishtar. Right. So it can just become synonymous with bombs. That's right. That's right. That's right. And you know, and it does have some things that you could you mean the things like the blind camel, you know, the that can be sort of singled out as, oh, this is how stupid this movie is. Mm-hmm. But it's actually much smarter than that. So is it as stupid as Homps? Um <laughs> I've never seen Homps, so now I'm gonna go back to it. I'm gonna do a yeah. comparison. But Well, right. Homps is not as good as Benji the Hunted. So Ooh. I'm just you know. Yeah, those Benji movies. Oof, that's that's opening up a whole other can of worms. I was my my runner up film, which I didn't get to, was I was going to talk about the Avengers, but not the Avengers you think. <laughs> There's the '90s version of the mm-hmm. Avengers with um, Ray Fiennes and and, and um, uh, uh, Uma Thurman Connery. and yeah. Sean Connery, which I like because it's you know in in the wave of uh, you know TV adaptations and superhero movies or before were kind of before superhero movies, I guess. But uh, it has the absurd conceit that Sean Connery, as the villain, wants to control the weather. <laughs> so, like, instead of, like, trying to, you know, get, you know, one million or one billion dollars, he just wants to control the weather. Because that's, <laughs> that, that'll be his, <laughs> that's his evil wish. So, uh, but that's kind of a nutty uh, uh, blockbuster uh, failure or non-blockbuster. So, anyway, that takes us through our turkeys. Hopefully that gives you some things to... Uh, roast up uh, gobble, this gobble. year. So, uh, um, my favorite gobble gobble of all time, by the way, and I can't find it. John McLaughlin on the McLaughlin Group. Love McLaughlin. Would always go gobble gobble <laughs> <laughs> to close the Thanksgiving yes, episode. Yes, yes, Oh man, I love, I love that. We have to talk about the McLaughlin Group. Then that's a that's a whole other that's a whole episode in itself. That's me, <laughs> like in second grade, like with coffee and smoking cigarettes, being like, oh, I get my politics. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. There's yes, a closing Pat Buchanan, in. You're right. There, yeah. You're right. Okay, thank you all. Uh, thanks to Kevin Krizmanich, who's uh, recording, producing, doing all sorts of wonderful things uh, to make us sound good and make it uh, make this podcast available to you. Also, want to thank Stacy Stickovich, uh, who goes the next, uh, takes it the next uh, few steps and puts it out on the web and through different sources, so you can actually hear us. So. Uh, and big thanks to uh, Wacky Neighbor, Michael Kackman. Thank you, Michael. I'll, a distinct pleasure to be here. <laughs> this is fun. Thank you. Come back again soon. I would love to. Okay.